0: Welcome to the We're Doing It Wrong podcast, a production of WDIW Media, hosted by Joseph Pizarre and inspired by David Michael Slater's book, We're Doing It Wrong, 25 Ideas in Education That Just Don't Work and How to Fix Them. And I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Ross Green. Uh, Dr. Green is known for... Uh, Some influential books, Uh, The Explosive Child is one, Lost at School is another, and I believe both of those are linked in our episode description, so if you're curious, you can find them there. Uh, Also Lost and Found in Raising Human Beings. He's also the uh, originator of the collaborative and proactive solutions model, which we discuss uh, quite a bit in this conversation. He's the executive producer of the documentary film The Kids We Lose, which is released in 2018. Dr. Green was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School for over 20 years and is now the founding director of the nonprofit, Lives in the Balance. He is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Tech and adjunct professor at the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Green has worked with several thousand behaviorally challenged kids and their families, and he and his colleagues have overseen implementation and evaluation of the collaborative and proactive solutions model in many different scenarios. So I think you'll find in our conversation uh, quite a bit of new information, I know I did, and then many of the resources we mentioned are linked below and I cannot recommend uh, his website Uh, for educators, I just simply can't recommend it enough. Just going through it myself, it gave me quite a few ideas for how I work with students just in my own, uh, you know, I teach general education. So just in my own work with students, it it really uh, made me think quite a bit about how I interact with kids when they aren't necessarily meeting expectations, really at any level, whether it's just something small or severe. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, I bring you Dr. Ross Green. and I am here with Dr. Ross Green. Dr. Green, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So, I am excited to speak with you. I've uh, really done a deep dive into your materials online and I think your your work is extremely pertinent to what we do obviously in education. So, in our conversation, I'm definitely coming from the perspective of a teacher, not so much as a parent, but uh, feel free to enlighten us on both of those spheres. But I thought maybe you could start off by just telling us a little bit about your own story, what brought you into the world of psychology, and then how did that translate into your work you're doing currently?
1: Well, uh, I don't know. As an adolescent, it was going to either be kids or dogs or music. Um, And uh, blood is not my gig, so that took care of uh, being a veterinarian. And didn't like the lifestyle of musicians, um, and so that wasn't going to be it either. Um, I'm thinking that I made a good decision on kids. Um, And so (laughs) I started, um, you know, as a camp counselor working with kids and then uh, majored in psychology as an undergrad uh, and then went to grad school to work with kids um, for child psychology and then slowly gravitated toward the kids who I felt were the most misunderstood, the ones who were very oppositional and aggressive verbally and physically and what many people would describe as out of control. Um, And they sort of became um, fascinating to me and um, started working with them a great deal and then started noticing that what I was trained to do to try to help them and their caregivers wasn't working very well in many instances and started uh, coming up with some new ideas. Um, and that's sort of what I've been working on and refining over the last, uh, I don't know, 25 years.
0: So I thought maybe we should begin with just some real basic definitions, just to ensure we're all on the same page. So, first, how is it best to conceptualize the phrase maladaptive behaviors? And how might, you know, us as teachers and even parents, um, compare that to a child's behavior that's just simply odd or out of the norm. So what makes, what makes something maladaptive from the perspective of a child?
1: Well, I don't uh, spend a lot of time um, distinguishing um, different subtypes of behavior. We'll leave that up to people who focus more on diagnoses. Mm. If a kid is doing something you don't want him to do or responding in a way you don't want him to respond, uh, that sounds maladaptive enough for me. You know, if I was to slice the pie, these days I slice it by referring, uh, first of all, it's important to know that I don't even focus on behavior. I focus on the problems that are causing those behaviors. Um, When we're only focused on behavior, all we're focused on is modifying it. When we're focused on solving the problems that are causing those behaviors, then we are focused on solving those problems. What I find is that when we solve those problems, the behaviors subside anyways, but the reverse is not true. When all we're focused on is modifying behavior, the behaviors may or may not subside, but the problems that were causing those behaviors are still there. So these days I refer to behavior simply as the fever, the uh, signal, the means by which the kid is communicating that he or she is stuck and that there are expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting. So I think adults know when a kid is exhibiting a behavior that the adults don't like, the big question, the big mandate is to move beyond the behavior and see what the behavior is telling us. What expectation is the kid having difficulty meeting that is causing those behaviors? And in my work, we call those unmet expectations unsolved problems and by calling them that we have adults in problem solving mode, not in behavior modification mode.
0: Got it. So I, I was thinking as you were as you were uh, answering that of uh, the situation I incurred in my undergraduate undergraduate education, where one of a pretty uh, well respected uh, professor of in that program essentially said that the first thing you've got to do when you have a misbehaving student is identify what that student's getting from the misbehavior. And so Mm. I I was wondering if you'd want to maybe take us through some of the more common myths and talk to us about the foundational idea of kids do well if they want to versus kids do well if they can.
1: Well, you just covered the first myth, and that is that the kid is getting something out of the behavior. I think that has been a wrong turn for a very long time the belief that the behavior is helping the kid get, escape, and avoid. I find that that's a pretty traditional view of things. I'm not looking for what the behavior is helping the kid get, escape, and avoid. I'm looking for what the behavior is telling us. And what the behavior is telling us is that there's an expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. All we're focused on is get, escape, and avoid. We may never get around to what expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting, And we almost certainly will never get around to helping that kid meet that expectation and solve whatever problems are getting in that kid's way. Um, So I think you've actually just covered myth number one. And it does tend to flow from a kids do well if they want to mentality, the belief that if a kid kid is not doing well, it's because he doesn't want to do well. As you and many others are probably aware, the key theme of my model is kids do well if they can. This is the belief that if this kid could do well, he would do well. If he's not doing well, something must be getting in his way. And a huge task for us caregivers is to figure out what's getting in the kid's way. What expectations is the kid having difficulty meeting? Why is the kid having difficulty meeting those expectations? And as many people know, Uh, if they know my work at all, your primary source of information on gathering that information is the kid, Um, not the adult, the kid. Uh, There's a lot of information that kids have to offer us about why they're having difficulty meeting our expectations. But if all we're doing is focused on their behavior, we'll never get that information. And if we think we always know what's getting in the kid's way, we'll never get that information either.
0: So are there other foundational underlying ideas of the collaborative and proactive solutions model? And I should flag that uh, for our listeners as the name of this model of care. Again, that's the collaborative and proactive solutions model. So how did you, uh, w- what are some of the other basic underlying ideas? And and I'm wondering how you initially conceived of them, if this was something you kind of were observing, uh, and then you kind of backfilled with, uh, or just built some curiosity and and then did some studies and figured out that this actually is the best approach, or if it was initially a research endeavor?
1: Um, You know, there's a lot of research that has contributed um, to the evolution and origination of this model. A lot of it comes from neuropsychology, which is where we learned that kids who are, Uh, behaving maladaptively, are lacking important skills, but are not lacking motivation. Um, But we've actually already covered a lot of the key themes of the model. One of them is that instead of focusing on behavior and modifying it, you're focused on the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. Two big themes that we haven't covered yet um is that that problem solving needs to be both collaborative uh which is, means it's something you're doing with the kid rather than to him so collaborative not unilateral and it needs to be proactive rather than reactive those are huge themes because uh, they contribute to the name of the model um collaborative and proactive solutions um and yes, it's good that you called attention to that. Uh, the name change, because I used to call it collaborative problem solving, but I don't call it that anymore. It's now collaborative and proactive solutions. In many ways, is actually a better name. Um, but there's a few other key themes, one of which we've already covered. Um, kids do all well if they can, not kids do all well if they want to. And doing well is preferable. Um, this is the belief that if this kid once again could do well, he would do well because he'd prefer to be doing well. There's no research telling us that behaviorally challenging kids are, doing, are preferred to do poorly. That's a myth, but still a very popular belief system. Now, let me go back to one of the key themes because it often throws people for a bit of a loop. The belief that the problem solving should be proactive rather than reactive. Is usually met with the response, yeah, but how can we be proactive when we never know when the kid's going to blow? When he's always blowing up from out of the blue, when he's so unpredictable? And the answers, of course, are he's not unpredictable, he's not blowing up from out of the blue. You know exactly when he's going to get upset if you figure out what his lagging skills and unsolved problems are ahead of time. Using an instrument that people can find on the website of my nonprofit, Lives in the Balance, and that's livesinthebalance.org. It's called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems. It helps make kids who people have been believing all along were unpredictable, predictable. What I'm always saying is once you figure out what a kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, there are very few surprises left. But the good part about that is that once you figure out what expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting, you can start solving those problems proactively because they're highly predictable. So the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is a really important part of the model. It is truly step number one. You don't really, in in kids who have long lists of expectations that they've been having difficulty meeting for a very long time, And these are the kids who we tend to be suspending a lot and giving a lot of detentions and still in 19 American states, paddling them and restraining them and secluding them. Those kids, Um, you need the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems so that you can, number one, organize the effort, not feel so overwhelmed. But number two, to make all of these episodes this kid is having highly predictable. And start solving one problem at a time.
0: And I'm definitely going to put the link for the educator walking tour in the episode description, so all of our uh, teachers and, and interested listeners can can go check that out. Because I, I know you've got basically all the material. <clears throat> excuse me, all the material organized pretty pretty nicely for any interested party, including that uh, that assessment tool you mentioned. I know it's linked there, along with along with videos. And, and and I'm curious as well. Um, you know, it's, it's a, you've basically built this huge website, and you're giving all this information and these tools out for free. At what point uh, in your development of this model did were you able to essentially uh, give it away?
1: Uh, well, I've always been trying to give away resources for free. Um, I don't know. I guess that's just my, um, um, I don't think mental health professionals should be getting rich off other people's misery. Um, and so um, it's always been my goal to have all those free resources available um, on a website so as to make them as accessible as possible. And we're always thinking of new resources to put up on the website, But and I'm very devoted to making sure that they are free. I want this model to be accessible to everybody, irrespective of their ability to pay. Of course, it does require an internet connection, which some folks don't have yet. About that, I may not be able to do much. Um, But the goal has always been to make this as accessible as possible. Um, And that's why there are so many free resources on the Lives in the Balance website. I think that there are many people who are a bit astonished that a model originator would be giving the model away for free rather than trying to uh, save all his money to live in Saint Bart's someday. I have no desire to live in Saint Bart's someday. So,
0: yeah. Well, and it's just it's organized very very nicely. In, in fact, I was I was uh, just reflecting as I was going through it that that one could essentially take these materials and and get to work with it pretty pretty quickly. the uh, The barrier uh, the barriers have been I think lowered for for implementation of, of your ideas. So thanks for that. I am I'm curious I I did look at the research section of your website and obviously there's a ton there so I did not go through it in any amount of detail but I'm wondering if there's been any major evolutions or changes to your model throughout the years as uh, more research has essentially from from what I saw um, and obviously it's on your website but it appears as though the research is validating these ideas so have there been any major changes
1: There have been major changes. I would not say that they have been prompted primarily by the research. The changes to the model have been prompted more by um, my experiences in implementing it and seeing people try to implement it. And I would say that the biggest change, um, there's a few changes. Number one, there wasn't always the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. So that came along the way. But when The Explosive Child was first published in 1998, uh, it gave the impression that a lot of the problem solving was supposed to be done in the heat of the moment and emergently, and it rapidly became apparent that that was not the ideal timing for solving problems. And so the whole focus on proactive has been huge because still, and this is true of schools, families, facilities, a great deal of the intervention that takes place for behaviorally challenging kids still takes place in the heat of the moment. And nothing, there's nothing great going on in the heat of the moment. Um, you know, the, the, when you're in the heat of the moment, you're in crisis management mode. And the only good advice somebody could give you on what to do in the heat of the moment is defuse, de-escalate, keep everybody safe. But heat of the moment is really a lousy time for trying to solve problems collaboratively, or trying to solve problems at all. And so the whole emphasis on being proactive in the approach to problem solving uh, has been a huge evolution in the model. Um, And I think it's made it easier for people. It does require some structural changes in schools and in facilities and even the lives of families because people do tend to be accustomed to leaping into action. The minute a problem pops up, It's a revelation for many people to discover that the very vast majority of problems don't pop up. This kid's been struggling with that expectation for a very long time, and that makes it highly predictable. And if it's predictable and we identify it proactively, then we can solve it proactively too. That's been huge
0: you know it's it's interesting the predictability of some of the challenging behaviors and the claim thereof that these behaviors are are predictable it's something that i agree with kind of from an intuitive level that there tend to be reasons there are as you put it expectations that the student is incapable of meeting so once those are identified one should be able to predict the behavior but uh, sort of just taking the other side of that um, how would you respond to this notion that as a classroom teacher what's going on is so complicated there's so many interactions um, there's so many different structures throughout a particular uh, child's school day especially at the middle school level for really the first time that uh, it's well it might be uh, uh, sort of within the realm of reality to uh, figure out what kind of expectations might cause a kid to go off, it's nearly impossible to mitigate the environmental factors that might cause it to happen in a school just because everything that's going on is is pretty complicated. So then students end up being isolated so that their environments can be controlled. And that's also not necessarily something we want to see occur. So how um, how do you parse that? Or maybe just help me conceptualize that. How do we avoid essentially taking some of our students with severe behavior challenges and putting them all in the same room just to kind of get them away from those environmental factors that are causing those behaviors
1: well um you're using some terminology that i would adjust slightly because it leads us in a somewhat different direction you're saying environmental factors i would say expectations Mm. you're saying managing the environment I would say, solving problems. And those are two really key distinctions. Um, Because yeah, this is gonna feel completely overwhelming if we think it's totally our job to um, sort out all the complex environmental factors that could be contributing to a kid's challenges and trying to manipulate, uh, as they say in the business, Uh, those environmental factors so that the kid's not challenging anymore. It's not what you're doing in this model. Um, what's, What's true throughout the school day is that we have expectations. Most students are meeting them. Some students aren't. What's going on in every social studies class is expectations that most students are meeting and that some students are not. So one of the nice things about this model is that, number one, The adults are not on the hook for figuring it all out. They've got a partner, a teammate, the kid, and the adults are not on the hook for for manipulating the environment so that the kid stops misbehaving. That's not this model. What adults are on the hook for in this model is identifying the expectations that the kid is having difficulty meeting and um, creating time to meet with that kid so that we can get those problems solved. The reason all kinds of kids end up together in a room for behaviorally challenging kids is because all of them have big stacks of unsolved problems that we haven't yet identified and that haven't yet been solved because we adults have been too busy focused on the behavior and manipulating the environment so the behavior does not occur. So even though the distinction may sound a bit subtle, it's actually huge.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's, yeah, I think it's extremely significant. It simplifies the problem into something that's actually approachable and manageable. I I wonder what do you do from, or what advice would you give to educators who follow your approach and what they find is the gap between, or, or essentially the the amount of expectations that a given student is unable to meet appears insurmountable. So I think you talk a little bit about choosing, you know, one thing to approach first, or, or in other words, not trying to solve everything at once. How how should educators prioritize, uh, what should guide their, their approach there when there's many things that need to be fixed?
1: Well, and the reason there are many things is because we haven't been focused on problems for so long and because we haven't been focused on solving them. When all we're focused on is behavior and modifying it or manipulating the environment, the problems remain unsolved. So many of our most difficult students, I call them frequent flyers because they are flying to the office so frequently, um, do have sometimes 40, 50, 60 different unsolved problems. They've accumulated over time. Um, You can't solve them all at once, so you've just mentioned a really important word of the model, prioritizing. If we try to solve all those problems at once, we will end up solving none of them at all. So prioritizing is an imperative. Um, We prioritize by safety. Um, If an unsolved problem is setting in motion safety issues, it's a high priority. Safety is a very big deal in schools these days. If the kid doesn't have any unsolved problems that are causing safety issues, we're either gonna go with frequency, the unsolved problems that are setting in motion, challenging episodes most often, or gravity, the unsolved problems that are having the greatest negative impact on the kid's life or the lives of others. Uh, We tend to tell people that the maximum they should be working on at any given point in time is three, three unsolved problems at a time, Hmm. the rest, have been prioritized away for now so that we don't end up trying to solve everything at once. But here's what I say to classroom teachers or other school personnel who have finally at long last identified this kid's unsolved problems. Well done. You have just done this kid the favor of a lifetime because you have finally at long last identified every expectation this kid is having difficulty meeting that have been setting in motion challenging behaviors for a very long time. Congratulations. Well done. You just did this kid a huge favor. But you inherited all those unsolved problems and you should feel no need to solve all of them all at once. You inherited them. All progress is incremental. You're going to solve two or three at any given point in time. At the end of a school year, you may have solved 15. By solving those 15, you may solve others. So you are definitely not gonna have to solve 40 or 50 unsolved problems for this kid to start looking better. Truth is, many students have just one or two, maybe three unsolved problems that are accounting for a very high percentage of their challenging episodes. bottom line is we got to get started somewhere. Otherwise, these kids all end up in a classroom together, be still having high piles of unsolved problems.
0: And would you, would you make the claim that the, at least the principles within this approach, uh, even if not all the formal aspects of it, including the forms and such, are, are just good practice kind of at that tier one level. So any student who has some struggles in school with regards to expectations, even if they're not severe. This is the approach teachers and educators ought to be uh, taking.
1: Yes. And by the way, if you do this at Tier 1, in my opinion, there's almost nobody left at Tiers 2 and 3.
0: Not to switch the subject, but uh, maybe just to add to it. I, I saw the trailer for your soon coming documentary film, The Kids We Lose. And I was pretty captivated by it. I I've always had an innate curiosity, I think, with uh, behaviorally challenged students. And so this is definitely something I'm going to be I'm going to be watching. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the documentary. How does one come to make a documentary and then uh, can we expect to have access to it in the coming months?
1: You can expect to have access to it in the coming months, but I am a bit beholden to film festivals at the moment because We're not sure where it's going to have its premiere yet. And it's got a premiere before we can release it for lots of screenings. And since that's up in the air, when it's going to be viewable by everybody is still somewhat up in the air. Um, I think we'll have that answer within the next two, maybe three months. I hate to keep people waiting on it. How do you come to make a documentary? You observe all kinds of things going on out there that you know are wrong and you come to the recognition that most people have no idea that those things are going on out there, including politicians and other policymakers, and you say to yourself, we have got to expose what's going on out there because it's brutal and it's not okay. Um, And then you... um, Say to yourself, "Well, uh, how can I make sure that this film is as impactful as possible? And then you decide to create a film that is feature length and a film festival quality film and you end up spending and having to raise an enormous amount of money on it. Um, but I'm delighted to report that we've been successful in raising that money and the film is now done and I'm really looking forward to having people see it um, and potentially to the policy changes that may result from the impact that this film has. At the very least, it's uh, gonna help people know what's going on out there. I should let people know the film is really not about the collaborative and proactive solutions model. It's an expose about what's going on out there and how horrifically we are still treating kids with behavioral challenges in lots and lots of places. I think
0: just the statistics that you cite, you know, the number of suspensions, I mean, just the fact that kids are still getting paddled in school surprised me. Um, so, yes, I think I think people are going to be I think they're going to be shocked. Um, I, I don't think that's too strong a language when uh, if you're taking and Obviously, I haven't seen it, but if, if you're taking s- the approach that I think you might be taking and so just some from my observations, I think there will be an element of shock and possibly even a call to action um, if enough people see it. And so that's really my next question. I'm not really sure how to word this. So you might have to help me out. But where where do we go from here? So let's imagine sort of this dream state where um, the problem is now seen by some some magical number of people where some change can occur what needs to happen at this at, at that large system level um or is this a ground up approach how do we how do we tackle this across the country in our education system does it need to come from you know the federal uh, education uh, realm or does it need to come from each individual school and practitioner how should we be conceptualizing this
1: well i like to think that this will come Uh, at a systemic level, um, it doesn't always. And so if it's not coming from a systemic level, then it needs to come from the ground up, one school at a time. Um, Both can get the job done. Obviously, if it's coming at a federal level, then often a change is mandated, and then we need to give people the tools um, to know how to create those changes. You know, within schools, a lot of the changes that need to be made are structural, Um, how we spend our time, how we evaluate teachers, how we refer kids uh, for help, how we refer kids for discipline. Um, Lots of those changes are structural, and those are the things that I'm starting to write a lot more about. And some of those structural changes, it sure is helpful, though they can be done at a grassroots level, sure is helpful if it's done uh, at a more macro level so that people at the individual school level feel like they have permission uh, to do things differently. Uh, In many schools, people feel like they don't have permission, that they have to stick rigidly to what's being mandated to them by those who are higher up. Um, So there's a lot of things that could happen at the grassroots level. There's many, many schools, countless schools uh, with visionary leaders and staff who've implemented the CPS model and have dramatically impacted how their students are treated and the culture in the building. So one thing's for sure, it can be done at the grassroots level. Um, It would be a whole lot more helpful if it was done at a more macro level so that more schools were aware of the problem and more schools were aware of what they could be doing differently
0: so it's uh you know i've always thought that a lot of the structural changes that are needed um, are going to cost money and it's difficult to be innovative particularly in this area i think when, when a teacher has you know and this is this is no exaggeration at all you know 36 students in a in an english class or a social studies class And, you know, you've got two maybe students in your class who are exhibiting some very significant behavioral challenges. So I feel like a lot of teachers get behind with respect to um, essentially the word proactive isn't in their vocabulary through no fault of their own. And uh, is that part of the structural changes you're looking at is just kind of uh, the system is overwhelmed at the moment how do we how do we underwhelm it so we can take in something of, of this uh, magnitude
1: well the system is overwhelmed for a few interesting reasons number one the way things are structured lend themselves to people being overwhelmed focusing on behavior and dealing with things in the heat of the moment all we're focused on is behavior and dealing with things in the heat of the moment and that's what a lot of the structures point us toward doing That's the perfect recipe for being overwhelmed and having a lot of kids who aren't getting their needs met in school classrooms and ending up in classrooms that are just filled with other kids whose difficulties were not well addressed. Uh, That's structural. And, you know, um, those are things that we can change. The part that I disagree with is that doing these changes, implementing change, costs more money. We spend an absolute fortune on kids who we lose. They are the most expensive kids in our society. Uh, In the United States, we spend upwards of $120,000 a year sometimes putting these kids in outside placements when they could have had their difficulties handled often, Uh, in a general ed classroom setting, if we were focused on problems and solving them proactively, instead of behaviors and dealing with them emergently. Um, That's a lot of money to spend on a kid. Um, In most of the schools where this model has been implemented, it was in an era of budget cuts and did not cost a nickel more.
0: a a great point i you know it's it's almost like they're hidden costs although they're not that hidden one just needs to add them all up i suppose
1: no if you look at the special education costs for most school system what you'll be seeing are astronomical numbers and astronomical numbers of dollars and astronomical numbers of kids uh this is fixable but it's not going to cost more money it's actually going to save money
0: yeah that's a that's a great point i i uh definitely didn't consider that so it's uh we really need to get smart about about this uh this issue in our in our schools I think it would have just it's one of those high leverage points I think for the system in whole uh, where we could see vast improvements again because this approach strikes me as being something beneficial for everyone every student in the school regardless of of how severe maybe some of their needs are. I wonder, um, could you just tell us, out of your uh, books, and and you've got The Explosive Child, Lost at School, Lost and Found, and Raising Human Beings, where would you direct a teacher who's listening right now who's immensely curious and wants to find out more, what would be the best book to begin with?
1: Well, the best place to begin is on the Lives in the Balance website, because as you mentioned, the walking tour for educators can really orient people to this model without it costing them anything. The best introductory book for educators is Lost at School. Um, I'm told that it is sort of a very interesting read because half of it is a running story. The book that comes after that, Lost and Found, is a bit more technical and goes into a bit more of the detail of the model, but there's plenty of detail in Lost at School. For anybody who's new to this model and wants to learn more about it and wants to read a book about it, uh, Lost at School is probably the place to start.
0: Thanks. And then if, if you have the time, I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about the parent perspective. And I don't think, I, I think teachers, all, all of us educators um, are naturally empathetic. You know, we, we care about our kids, but many teachers uh, don't, They don't work intimately with students who have these challenging behaviors because they end up being segregated in the school system so maybe help us build a little empathy here what what is it like to be the parent perhaps of a child with severe behavior challenges that aren't um with a school system that maybe is not meeting those needs the way they ought to be what what does that look like for a family
1: it tends to be extremely frustrating um Um, for many reasons. One of the reasons is that there does tend to be a tendency, this is not everybody, but a tendency, to blame parents for the expectations their kid is having difficulty meeting at school. When it's not even the parents' expectations, and the parents aren't there when the kid is having difficulty meeting them, um, blaming parents is just a major distraction. Even if the kid is going home to something that isn't ideal, There's often a tendency to point at the home for the reason the kid is having difficulty at school. We gotta stop doing that. Uh, It's a distraction. We've gotta complete the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems at school. We've gotta start solving those problems collaboratively and proactively with the kid at school. Even if the kid is going home to something that isn't ideal, educators have this kid six hours a day, five days a week, nine months out of the year, You can do a kid a whole lot of good in six hours a day, five days a week, nine months out of the year. The ideal, of course, is to not blame the parent, even if you believe that the kid is going home to something that isn't exactly ideal. Most folks aren't real good at helping and understanding behaviorally challenging kids. And that's parents, that's educators, that's often staff members in the facilities that these kids end up in. None of us are that great at it yet. So there's no reason to blame anybody. Let's put our heads together. Let's figure out what's getting in this kid's way. Let's figure out what expectations this kid's having difficulty meeting, and let's get to it on solving those problems. But feeling blamed is not conducive to collaborating. Um, Parents often feel helpless because they're not there when the kid is having difficulty, but especially parents often feel very frustrated by the systemic and structural issues that are very difficult for them to navigate to try to get their kid the help they feel their kid needs. Um, It is extremely frustrating to be the parent of one of these kids if you're trying to get the kid help at school while also dealing with challenging behavior and unsolved problems at home. Uh, Here's the interesting thing. Some of the schools that we've worked with have invited parents in to see how they're doing problem solving at school and that sets the stage for parents to do it at home so there's room for collaboration all the way around yeah
0: and that's got to be a powerful approach where the kids giving the same approach and message on on both fronts well thank you so much for your time today i definitely want to give you the last word are, are there any i'm sure there's much we haven't covered but anything major you see that uh, we should we should know before we before we go here
1: Uh, you know what, Uh, just check out the website, get on the walking tour for educators. I don't have anything that I, we've covered a lot of territory. I can't think of anything offhand that um, I would add to it at this point. Lots of free resources on that website. So be sure to take advantage of them.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Green. I know you're you're very busy. At least your online presence would indicate someone who's doing this many things must be very busy. So we really appreciate you coming on and uh, taking the time to share some information with us.
1: I appreciate you having me on, thanks.